Jesus was a confirmation teacher. He had kind of a, a rough class, a lot of arguing. And uh, it came time for him to teach a lesson uh, where he needed a, a good Bible story about where God encounters someone and how they react to that encounter. He thought about Abraham and Sarah and how God uh, met them and asked them to move to a new land. Moses and the burning bush, uh, how David was chosen and called to be the king of Israel. He thought about uh, the great Queen Esther and how she was called to stand in the gap for her nation. He thought about stories in his own life about the way he encountered Peter and Andrew on the beach and, or Mary and Martha or the Sons of Thunder. But he didn't use any of those stories with this confirmation class. It was a particularly argumentative group, not like our kids at all, okay? And so he made up a story, just made one up out of thin air. And uh, so that is our text for this morning. It comes from the 21st chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. And it begins this way. Jesus says, what do you think? He's putting his hearers kind of on their heels right from the beginning. He's saying there are no innocent bystanders in this story. You need to decide something. What do you think? There once was a man who had two sons. Almost like once upon a time. And he went to the first son, and he said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And this son said, Yes, I will, sir. But then he did not go. Which of these two? did his, what his father wanted him to do. The first, obviously, they answered. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Did he have to say that at the end? The hearers of this story lived in the ancient Mediterranean world where everyone had a social map, and they used that social map to figure out who their friends could be, who they would relate to, how they would talk to people, where they would go. We do the same thing. Um, those of you who are still in school, you use your social map to, to figure out where to congregate, where to sit in the lunchroom, who you'll talk to, who you'll recognize in the hallway. We all do that. In fact, there's a, a social map here in the sanctuary, isn't there? We, we know where people sit. The, Mary Cox sits right there every, every week. We know that. Pam right behind, couple rows there. I mean, we, every one of you has your spot. It's a social map, and um, we use that in all realms of our life. It gives us a way of navigating through all of our interactions. 
Jesus tells the story of a family that was the basic social unit of his day. And families tended to live in little villages. That was also part of their map. And so here is a father and his two sons. We assume there was a mother there somewhere as well. And uh, so there's this family. And uh, the family exists to uh, do the bidding of the father, and the father's job is to maintain the family, to help it survive, to keep it going. And the, and the children exist to help support the family. I talk to a lot of uh, people today who are raising children, and they are working to raise their kids. They see their job, their place in life is to make sacrifices and work to help their kids have opportunities to enable them to become what they can be. Back then, no, it was the kids who worked for the parents to help the family survive. Not to build up a great surplus, not to amass wealth, but just to make it. Because these were peasants. And so... We have here uh, a story of a typical family, a peasant family that Jesus describes, and they are the image of God and Israel. We see that God in the image of the parent and the people of God, the family. It is a parable of the kingdom, is it not? And how intriguing that Jesus describes such a dysfunctional family as the image of the kingdom of God. An image, an, an, a story of a family where none of the kids are doing right, really. They're, both of them are troubled. And the relationships with dad are troubled. It reminds me some of my own father, who was pretty authoritarian. And I can remember... Probably one of the worst memories I had was when he asked me to mow the lawn on a, on a weekend. I put it off all day Saturday. I said, I'll do it, I'll do it. I, but I put it off Saturday. I wanted to play. Had to go to church Sunday morning. Then I had other stuff Sunday afternoon. It's getting late Saturday, Sunday afternoon. Lawn hasn't been mowed. And he calls me to the living room and says, what are you doing? you I said, well, I've got to go to youth group now. I can't mow the lawn. And he pulled back his fist. And I stared at that fist. And I was so scared. And it broke my heart. And it broke his heart, too. He didn't do anything. In fact, he dropped his fist and immediately apologized. I don't want you to understand. He was never abusive or never hit me. But he did have a temper, and I knew how to play it as a teenager. And so I come from an imperfect family. I can identify as a son who didn't always do what dad said to do. We brought this story up at a staff meeting this week, and one of our staff members said, oh, when my dad told me to do something... I would say yes, and then I would go do it. Well, la-di-da, so good, you know. I won't mention who that is. You can just figure it out. 
And then another one of our staff persons said, well, I was the kind of person when my father told me to do something, I would say, yes, I'll do it, Father. And then I wouldn't do it. And I would just hope he would lose interest and not notice. But even if he did notice, it was better to deal with his disapproval than to have to always immediately be obedient and do everything he told me to do. At least sometimes I got away with doing what I wanted to do. Well, isn't it fascinating that this messed up family is Jesus' preferred choice for describing to us today what the kingdom of God is like. How can this be? Both sons end up bringing shame to this father. The first son says, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. He publicly stands up to his dad and says, no. The second son says, I'll do it. He, he outwardly shows honor, but then privately disobeys and disregards. And everyone in the village could see that the field has not been tended, the vineyard. Both sons cause this acrimony with the father. And yet one son has a moment that changes things. In the story, it says he regrets what he has said. The first son, he regrets saying no to dad. And he turns around and he goes out to work. I think about all the things I've said that I would regret. A lot of them in sermons, to be honest with you. But a lot of them in in the family setting. I think about a time in my life when I was just maybe a year or two older than you confirmands. I was going to high school at Terry Parker, and, you know, I was involved in a group of friends that, I had a bunch of friends, but it always seemed that we were trying to outdo each other in being cool. We always had to act a certain way. I never felt really very secure and it, it was like, if, as long as you do a certain thing, you're okay. And as long as you achieve a certain thing, you get approval. But if you don't achieve, you're disapproved. If you don't act cool, if you don't know how to have those social graces of a 14-year-old and 15-year-old in high school, which I had very little of, then, you know, you're just not so cool. And so I started doing things that I thought would get me to to gain that kind of approval. You know, whether it was drinking, drinking to excess, whether it was sneaking out at night, openly lying to my parents and other people's parents. We'd go out and vandalize in the neighborhood. We'd paint graffiti. We'd break hood ornaments off cars. Just stupid stuff. Senseless stuff. All it did was express my own inner angst, my my own sense of lostness. And I came to a point where once I got involved in a particular youth group with kids at my high school, and I started to sense that there was another way of relating with my peers, that we could actually care for each other 
that, that with some help, we could learn to accept each other, be vulnerable with each other, trust each other, even love each other. As I was learning that, I began to regret how I had felt about myself. I, had, I was learning to regret the way I had treated my parents and some of my peers, some of the mean things I used to say. I began to regret some of what I had been doing with my life, and I decided to start trying to do something a little bit different with the help of the people in that group. Could never have done that alone. Well, somehow I think that is what happened in this story of the two sons. The regret fueled a healthy decision and a reconciliation in a relationship. Reminds me of a story of Tom Long told when he was growing up. He said um, that uh, when he did something he shouldn't have done that displeased his parents, his mother would say something like, Son, that was uncalled for. Uncalled for, that's an interesting phrase. Uncalled for. It's as if there's someone out there calling for us. It's as if what it means to be good is not just summoning up some inside virtue, but actually hearing our name called by someone from the outside. It's as if to be who we were created to be, we need to hear that voice, that voice calling us. The older I get, the more I believe this is true. One of the deepest human hungers is that we want to be called for. We want to have our name called. Like those guys sitting in the green room at the NFL draft, sitting around a table waiting for the phone to ring. They, didn't, they wanted their name to be called. They didn't want to wait and be embarrassed. They didn't want to be left out, and neither do we. One of the deepest fears that we have is that there is no one out there who knows our name and calls us. The well-known scientist Carl Sagan, late in his life, became interested in what became known as the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Another way to put it is that the search for other beings in the universe who might communicate with us. And so radio telescopes were constructed on mountaintops to listen to the radio waves of the universe to see if someone was trying to communicate with us. And someone asked Carl Sagan, what if we never get any messages? And he said, well, it's a possibility, but it's a depressing thought, isn't it? To me, it's depressing that there might be no one in the universe trying to call us. Those of you who have been confirmed today and all of us who claim Christ as our Lord, we believe there is someone who calls us. Do we not? Even Matthew McConaughey, when he received his Oscar for the Dallas Buyers Club, said this, 
God has graced my life with opportunities that I know are not of my own hand or of another human hand. He has shown me that it's a scientific fact that gratitude reciprocates. Now, I don't know anything about his faith or who he's really talking about, but he does seem to have an awareness that something beyond himself has has called him, called him to some purpose. But how would you know if you're being called? How would you know how to hear your name in response to God? Sometimes it may be just the joy that wells up inside you when you're doing something, when you're playing with children, or maybe it's a musical instrument that you love to play, or or a sport you love to be involved in. Uh, Maybe you love teaching or being with elderly folk. Sometimes the call of God works in our lives through what we love to do. But none of us could say we're not called. All of us, we've been baptized, we've been confirmed, we know we have been included in the roll call of God. Isn't it odd that only, in our church anyway, confirmands and potential clergy are the only ones who are asked to write a faith statement? How about you all? How about the rest of us? How about we all write a faith statement? Every year, how about it? Would you like to do that and stand up in front of the session and have to say it? It would probably be something to think about. I've thought, why not try Confirmation 2.0 for the bridge class? What do you think? Or Confirmation 3.0 for the Underwood class, or, and, and so on and so on. Why stop there? Why not have something like Confirmation over and over in our adult lives, reaffirming the faith of our baptism in new ways, in ways that are are appropriate to what we know and experience as authentic today. Can you imagine what it would be like for us to hear these faith statements periodically? A few years ago, I was with an eighth grader, and uh, she was sharing her statement of faith with me. Her grandfather had died of cancer before she was born. And about a year before his death, he started to reflect on his battle with cancer, and he wrote a statement of faith and renewed his baptism at his church. And this young person's family kept that written statement, written in the grandfather's own hand, and shared it with her as she was preparing to write her own statement of faith. What an incredible gift that is. There is no doubt in my mind that this statement of faith means so much more to this girl and her family than any ancient creed could ever mean. This is the kind of living faith that we are called to experience for ourselves and share with others. Like the two sons, we are called to respond 
to the calling of the Father, inviting us to join in the work, in the family work, not just one time, but over and over. You know, the slogan of the Presbyterian Church is, the church reformed and always reforming. And if that is the corporate expression of what it means to be on a journey of faith, then perhaps this is the individual expression, to be confirmed and always confirming. Ralph Waldo Emerson, and I don't know why he kept the name Waldo, I wouldn't have, said, this is a great quote, he said, a person will worship something. That which dominates our imagination and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship, for what we are worshiping, we are becoming. Amen.